I'm Bob, and this is Happily Even After. So this is episode five where we're going to investigate what's arguably one of the most difficult things for many of the couples, and that's rebuilding trust. Yeah, one of the top questions coming our way is how do we rebuild trust? Or honestly, sometimes it sounds like this. Can I ever trust him again? And if you're a wife and you're wondering that, well, you are not alone and you're in the right place today. And if you're a husband and you're wondering when you're going to be trusted again, stick around. I'm going to share the power of Patrick Karn's personal craziness index, which was and is a great tool for me to stay on the sexual integrity bandwagon. But equally as important, it ended up being one of the things that made Dana feel safe enough to trust again. Yeah, and I'm going to start today by just, I've got to tell you about one of my favorite resources that helped me rebuild trust. One day, I was scanning Amazon for lifelines, something to tell me how to trust again. And I came across a book titled, Healing Your Marriage When Trust is Broken. I wanted to read it right away. So I downloaded it to my iPad and began. And the first words I read were these. If you're reading this book, chances are you're staring at an obstacle so big and so wide and so high that you don't think there's any hope. But with God, there's always hope. I was immediately hooked. Now, this woman's story was very different from mine. Hi, my name is Cindy Beal. On February the 19th, 2002, my husband came home and confessed that he had been unfaithful to me. Cindy's husband was a worship leader who'd had multiple affairs over the course of two years and had gotten another woman pregnant. Here he is on Focus on the Family, telling how his problem actually began. You know, there was a pornography struggle that started when I was eight years old and um, followed me all through adolescent years into young adulthood, manhood. And it just, it just changed kind of the moral center of my life. Now, I hadn't experienced the same kind of a trust breach that Cindy had, but I certainly related to a woman who was in the crosshairs of a porn problem escalating. Shortly after Chris confessed to Cindy, her mother encouraged her to visit a pastor. So I went to visit with him, and by the point, as I'm confiding and telling him everything and weeping, he's just as gracious as gracious can be. And he just looked at me, and, and he said, you know, you are not a fool to stay and be a part of the redemptive work in a man's life. When I read those words in Cindy's book, well, they were like healing ointment to my broken heart. All of the words in Cindy's book contained healing power for me. When I read them, I just sensed her strength. But she certainly didn't start out that way. Her story began like all of ours in brokenness. As you can imagine, my world instantly fell apart. I was without hope. I was in complete despair. I didn't know if I was going to stay. I didn't know if I was going to leave. I, I really didn't know my next step. Fast forward, going on 10 years, and what's happened in our marriage is... Um, Nothing short of miraculous. Um, just to see where we are. is um, 
power of God. It's not two people. It's just um, two people surrender to God. And when you surrender, you will find God's power. Hey there. Welcome to the Happily Even After podcast, where you'll hear a story of a husband and wife who did not ride off into the sunset, but found themselves fighting a man's fierce battle with lust and pornography. Bob and Dana Gresh are raw, real, and honest. Their guests are wise experts in the work of marriage recovery. Some have degrees in therapy or psychology. You can forgive somebody and not trust them at all. And if somebody's violated your, your uh, relationship, it would be stupid to trust them right away. Others have learned their lessons on the hot pavement of life. Think about the ones that were standing up there with you that day when y'all were married. And you're up there and you're saying, this represents our marriage with Christ. And there's no one in this world that I trust more than this one. And man, you're just looking in those eyes and you're going, I trust you more than anybody. And then somewhere along the way, our hearts start to come unattached. They'll help you explore seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Oh, and by the way, you can live happily even after. Here's Bob Gresh. Well, Dana, after the first few episodes, we've been getting a lot of responses from all over the country. And um, a lot of them are hitting on the same topic, same question. Um, what are they writing to you? Well, they have questions. They want advice. And uh, trust is a, a recurring topic. But they're also celebrating their husband's victories. One of my favorites from this week was a woman that told me her weekly win was this. Hearing my husband say he wanted to truly repent, be new, I was ugly crying, full of love and joy. What, what brought that about? Well, she said, without a doubt, this is what she wrote, without a doubt, number one thing was, is God, glory to him, 1,000%. Plus, my husband finally realized how serious of a problem it is. I told him he could have his marriage or his secrets, but not both. Whoa. Setting down the boundaries. Yep, exactly. That's what she did. And then she went on. The other important tool, your happily even after book. Mm. I haven't even read a page yet. Every night he's been reading it since it arrived. Thank you and Bob so much for being courageous to share your story. Well, that's always encouraging. It's good to hear that. Yeah, because it's, it's still, I mean, we're still a little bit uh, learning how to tell our story. Yeah. It's learning, been, uh, learning how to have courage. It's been challenging, but the good responses kind of keep us going. They do. Well, let's dive into truth number five, which is trust is a gift you choose to give. Uh, I want to start out by reading Isaiah 2.22. It contains a warning about trust. Here it is. Don't put your trust in mere humans. They are as frail as breath. What good are they? You probably didn't expect us to start there, did you? Well, we think it's an important starting point in rebuilding trust. You see, when I was reeling in the pain of distrust, I dug into the Bible and I discovered that we're told over and over in Scripture that we shouldn't put our trust in each other. Who knew? Well, the Word of God did, and it indicates that we can count on some of our most important relationships to fail us. Isaiah 49.15 records that even a nursing mother whose baby needs her for survival might forget her infant. That one 
always gets me. That verse just, can you imagine? Yeah, that's about as deep as it gets. Mm. So Isaiah 31 says that sorrow awaits the one who places their trust in other people. Sorrow. And you might be feeling that sorrow right now. And that sadness is part of what makes it so hard to believe you could trust again. Mm. I think it's really important for us as men to listen to the sorrow and the pain that we've caused our wives. Today's topic was prompted from a question from a listener in New York. She wants to know, will I ever be able to trust him again? That's Rosie McKinney on her podcast, Fight for Love. I would say this is the most pressing question that wives have when they get into recovery. Oftentimes, the damage caused by porn addiction is so profound that it's difficult to imagine getting back to a place where you will be able to trust him ever again. There are many misconceptions about porn addiction, but one of the most damaging is that what a wife doesn't know won't hurt her. The truth is wives always know that something is going on. They just don't know exactly what. When it is revealed that your husband has been looking at porn, the betrayal breaks your heart. But the thing that shatters your trust, even more than the betrayal, is the deception. Yeah, on this episode of Rosie's podcast, it's titled, Will I Ever Trust Him Again? She asked women whose husbands were in recovery um, to revisit their pain. And it's very sobering to listen to what some of them said had hurt the most. It was less the betrayal and more the deception. It was the fact that every time he would do it and he would tell me, he'd promise it was the last time. He'd promised me he loved me. He promised me that I was enough for him and that we'd never do it again. And just over and over again, he would break that promise. And for me, it just, every time he broke that promise, it was just more proof that he was untrustworthy and not a safe person. By safe, I mean emotionally safe and intimately safe. I'm not saying that um, I was afraid, like physically afraid or anything like that. I would say for me, it was definitely the deception. I do not think it's obviously okay to look at porn, but that was much less damaging to me than the fact that I knew that my husband had been deceiving me for such a long period of time. And so that was really more of a concern to me than what he had looked at or, you know, the extent of what we were dealing with. Although those were important, I was much more concerned with how are we going to actually rebuild trust to where we have a marriage and I don't feel consumed by wondering what he's doing. The betrayal was devastating to me as a woman and as a wife. Um... But the um, deception, I get very emotional. Um, the deception was, enough, it was just a betrayal of our unity and our marriage. And I remember um, in counseling talking about this question, and I was so angry. And I remember telling our counselor, I can deal with the porn. That's not a big deal, which was a lie. But that was where I was at at that moment, like, I can deal with a porn, but if he would just be honest with me, then I would know what we were dealing with and we could move forward. But I was constantly having to drag stuff out of him. I would see red flags or behaviors and I would have to constantly drag it out of him and ask certain questions and be very specific in in how I ask those questions because they're a little sneaky when they're not in recovery. It was devastating. Many wives will tell you that it's not the porn that hurts the most, it's the lies about the porn. And until that stops, 
you really shouldn't trust your husband. Do you remember the last episode when Dana and Pete were talking about this? Let's talk about forgiveness and trust. How are they different? Well, you can forgive somebody and not trust them at all. And if somebody's violated your your, uh, relationship, it would be stupid to trust them right away. And that's another mistake that a lot of a lot of people feel is that if I forgive, I need to trust immediately. And then you go to either I have to blind, blindly trust no matter what they say or do, or I'll never trust them again. And we need to learn to trust perceptively um, and, and trust them on the basis of their trustworthiness, what they are demonstrating, how, how the track record is developing. And as the, as they are consistent in their behavior over time, that's when I can truly learn to trust them again. And, and forgiveness is, is um, may have happened quite a while ago, but the, the trust gets rebuilt over time with consistent behavior. Now, we're not saying that trusting your spouse doesn't matter. It, it does. The two of you have entered into a covenant relationship that is meant to reflect the love of Jesus Christ. And if it is anything... It's got to be a trustworthy relationship. In Proverbs 31:11, it says, "A man's heart safely trusts in his wife. Though it does not command trust, it holds up a reliable relationship as admirable. Exactly. It's just that we should not ever be surprised when a human relationship lets us down. The Bible warns us about it. I think lots of times we blindly trust our spouse, but we can expect moments of hurt. We can also choose moments of healing, including rebuilding trust. Yeah, I want to repeat something Pete said. He said, trust gets rebuilt over time with consistent behavior. The duration and the consistency matters. As a guy who may be frustrated with the lack of trust being extended to you, let me remind you, she's catching up mentally and emotionally to all the things you were hiding or lying about. Give her time. Start telling the truth and demonstrate consistent behavior over time not just for a day or week or even a month, give her something worth trusting. Honestly, Bob, the trust game was hard for me until you did start offering me gifts of, I guess, making progress. Like you were inviting me into that process and that helped me start to feel like, oh, I can trust this. Yeah, and I want to share something that was really important for me and I think for you to build consistent behavior was um, Patrick Carnes personal craziness index, the PCI. You, you basically pick five things, five basic things you do every day because people who relapse tend to sort of relapse in stages. So you pick five basic things you do each day and your spouse can watch that. It's basically a universal tracking tool that can be used by anyone, not just addicts, to monitor and maintain balance. The, the concept is that when your life is in balance, there are areas in your life that you're being disciplined in. And that a lot of it comes down to the daily disciplines. And when they fall away, you start to get imbalanced in life. Um, For me, they're very simple things. One of them is just making the bed. And the thing about that is Dana can see that every morning. But it is something that every day, for me, as I wake up, is a discipline. Not a big discipline, but something I might not do otherwise. You may think this sounds odd, but I'd throw Proverbs 5.23 at you. It tells you that a man dies for lack of discipline. What that's saying is he's led astray to foolishness when the basic disciplines are missing in his life. So make your bed, 
or whatever the other basic disciplines are that help you start your day well. It might be working out. It might be just getting to work on time, having your devos, mm-hmm. reading a chapter of a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is that small steps matter. They give you little wins and they help build trust in the relationship. Yeah, they get you headed in the right direction. Uh, trust really was one of the hardest things for us to rebuild. Yeah, and we worked through that with some friends, actually. Um, here's your friendly advertisement for community. Can't do this alone. That's right. One of the friends who knows everything and walked with me through this is Lynn Nold. She sat with me. She cried with me. She prayed with me. She brought me the world's best peanut butter rice crispy treats on what was the worst birthday ever. And when I hit this wall, this trust wall, I just went to her and I said, I don't trust Bob and I don't want to trust him. Can I ever trust him? And Lynn invited Bob and me to meet with her and her husband, Dan. They listened, they encouraged us. And I'll never forget what Dan said to me that night. Dana, he said, Bob certainly hasn't earned your trust, but I'm, I'm not convinced anyone really can. Trust is a gift. That's what got me. Trust is a gift. And he he told me at some point, you just need to decide if that's something you're going to give Bob. Being vulnerable and beginning to rebuild trust together after a significant betrayal, it is a valid choice for your marriage. And if you're serious about redeeming your marriage, at some point, you need to make a deliberate and intentional decision to gift your husband with your trust. But you don't have to do it all at once. This is where... Bob, I'm thinking about our coaching friend, Mike Bivens, really comes into the picture. Yeah, Bevo had worked with us in the past, not on this issue, but we had plenty of issues to talk about other than this. And in one of our coaching sessions, he just told us outright, you guys have got a trust problem. Well, that kind of aggravated us, to tell you the truth. We were all of a sudden on the same team saying, that doesn't seem right. We Mm -hmm. don't really think that, that, that fits. And Mike told us, you're committed to each other but you're not feeling it. You've got to put some um, deposits in each other's cookie jars. Yep, that's the day I started calling Mike the cookie jar man. I mean, I can remember him using a fist to pound on his chest and saying, right there in the middle of your man is a cookie jar. you got to fill it up, Dana. Y'all are not filling up each other's cookie jars. Did you like that, y'all? Yeah, that was great, y'all. I (laughs) thought you would just suddenly been transformed into a southern southern belle. Southern girl, yeah. Well, but... Honestly, it took me 10 years and our marriage literally hitting ground zero to truly understand what Mike was trying to teach us that day. Well, it turns out the behavioral science proves that Mike's cookie jar theory is actually useful. John Gottman is a psychologist who has invested you know, over 40 years of research on marital stability. He believes trust is actually built and rebuilt in the smallest of moments. It's little steps. He calls them sliding door moments, and the the name is based on a movie by the same name, which is Sliding Doors. It's a Gwyneth Paltrow movie, and and in that movie, the girl is running to make the train. She makes it, and her life unfolds, you know, one way, but then the movie replays that scene, and she doesn't make it through the sliding doors the next time, and her life unfolds in a dramatically different manner. Um, Hey, just for kicks, we have the movie trailer to Sliding Doors, and you should listen to it. Would things be different if you caught the train instead of missing it? Is that so over the top? I mean, the 1990s wants its voiceover back. (laughs) Anyway, John Gottman says little moments in marriage can be sliding doors that change the course of the relationship for good or for bad. 
And this could apply to many different aspects of your marriage, but it certainly speaks to the process of building and rebuilding trust, baby steps. Yep. To put it another way, small, seemingly insignificant acts can put cookies in the trust jar of your heart. When we crawled into our red leather chairs to revisit all the people who've helped us on the journey to redemption, we talked about this topic a lot with Mike. We went over it again. We were discussing how our marriage used to tend to blow up a lot. And then the subject of the cookie jar came up, of course. During one of those blow-ups, you told me that I was not putting any cookies in my man's cookie jar, which you tend to speak another language. When you talked to me that day, somehow the Lord cemented in my mind this whole idea of doing things for Bob that filled up his proverbial cookie jar. But the Holy Spirit put it on a shelf for me for when Mm. I was ready to use it which was probably 10 years later. Wow. Right on. Amen. And it was at a time when I was really coming to a place, Bob was starting to walk in integrity. He was starting to walk in consistency. He was walking with other men in emotional intimacy through groups and, and support groups. Um, And my therapist looked me in the eye and said, you're essentially emotionally divorced because you're not moving forward the way that he is. Mm, that's and good. You, you may not have a piece of paper, but your heart is all clamped up. Mm. It's not accessible to him. Mm-hmm. You need to trust him. Mm. And somehow I saw your face mm-hmm. and you were pounding on your chest and saying, you got to fill up your man's cookie jar. <laughs> and <laughs> Do you remember that at all? I remember you- the yes. <laughs> I remember the 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 cookie jar uh statement phrase had used that a, a ton. Not so much since I've hung out with you guys. It because it's it does seem like for every couple or individual that we hang out with, we we truly do ask the spirit to reveal what we believe your DNA is and, you know, and, and, and father, what is the language that will connect us with their hearts? And that has, he looked at me and thought it'd be cookies for Bob. That's what happened there. (laughs) Absolutely. Especially a chocolate chip. That's just mm, ooey gooey. There you go. Well, so so, a little bit, how important it is that we fill each other's hearts up. It's crucial. I mean, it's absolutely crucial. Think about the ones that were standing up there with you that day when y'all were married. And you're up there and you're saying, this represents our marriage with Christ. And there's no one in this world that I trust more than this one. Was she on your right or left when y'all married, Bob? Left. All right, this is my left. And man, you're just looking in those eyes and you're going, I trust you more than anybody. And then somewhere along the way to what you were talking about, our hearts start to come unattached unless we're just so intentional. Of And here's the other thing, guys. Deb and I have to continually coach each other up on what fills our hearts. Mm. We change. You know, our love languages change a little bit. You know, mine hadn't changed that much. Hers has. Hers have, have changed a little bit. And so we're just, you know, I call them pulse checks. 
you know, and just will occasionally ask her, say, hey, babe, what are you dreaming about right now? You know, mm-hmm. and just ask some of the craziest questions ever. If your name wasn't Debbie, what would your name be? <laughs> that's kind of funny. I think she said Tina. Okay, that sounds ridiculous to me, but let's play along, right? It's the little things that funny memory for Mike and Debbie was a sliding door moment, (laughs) a cookie in their jars. And every time I went to a meeting, made my bed, showed up for counseling, told the truth, that was filling up Dana's cookie jar. Well, Bob, you haven't mentioned the one thing that meant the most to me. And should I ask what that was? Yep. Okay, what was it? It was eye contact. Ah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. one of the tougher things. Yeah. It was something that was missing when you were covered in shame, and I just longed for it. And when you started to walk in integrity, you started to look me in the eyes yeah, again. I think that was a gigantic change and one that was actually really hard for me. Mm. And when we were talking to Dana's counselor, Tippy Duncan, she told us something that I thought was really interesting about that. I took a, a workshop a couple years ago on detachment. What happens to babies when the mother is not attached to them? What happens is they've discovered this, that the baby's brain becomes chaotic and confused because they're always trying to make sense out of something that makes no sense. But this is the good news. And I've been doing it for 45 years. I was so excited when I heard this, that when you pay attention and you listen and you're looking into somebody's eyes like we're looking at each other, what happens is the attachment that wasn't attached becomes repaired. You become attached and you see yourself in different ways. And all you have to do is look at somebody and listen. And that happens. Really listen, you know, not think you know what's going on, but just listen and maybe say, so you're saying this or whatever. Do you know what I mean? That is good news. That's really simple. Well, it's not always simple to do, but it's a, it's a practice that we all need to do, especially in marriage. So that kind of intimacy heals us. Yes, it does. Because what the other person feels is that they have value and that they're being listened to. And being listened to is powerful. A lot of people don't have anybody that really listens to them. And it's not judgmental. I'm amazed professionally when I'm dealing in ministry or with the school that I run, uh, how powerful it is just to listen to people. They can come in. Yes. That they can come in with 40 different uh, things that are on their mind. And if you just right. hate them and say, you know, I just want to hear what you have to say. I understand that. I understand how you feel. I would feel the same way. I have felt the same way that right. the, the amount of walls are torn down immediately are right. amazing. Listening. Uh, now there's a big old killer cookie still warm out of the oven to put in your partner's cookie jar. We talk like we were total naturals at this. No, we were not naturals at this. Not far, far from it. Yeah, we were so bad at listening that Pete Kuyper literally had to give us a trivet to hold. It was, what? What's a trivet? I can't even... It's a coaster. It was... It, I don't know. It was like he handed us this little disc-shaped thing that was on his... Was it a coaster? Like Maybe it was a trivet. <laughs> Sounds like some kind of animal from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but, but the point is, yes. we were so bad at it, he had to give us a tool. A trivet. Yeah. And I don't... We were not very good at it in the office that day. It was really an aggravating well, but the, exercise. But the only person... 
the person holding it could talk and the other person had to listen until the trivet or coaster, as you call it, was passed to them. And we weren't good at the office. I think I think Pete was relieved when we left that day. But do you think I'm better at listening to you today? Yeah, I think you are. <laughs> That's it. That's all you got? I think you're really great, honey. <laughs> well, I was thinking you were definitely a better listener. Well, sometimes the trivet with a trivet passing. <laughs> trivet training. Sometimes I think I actually can see you biting your tongue when we're talking and I'm not finished. But even that fills my cookie jar just a little bit because it's very kind. Well, after all that, what we're saying is we started learning how to listen and make eye contact and those kinds of things. And that built trust for both of us. So, so it's simple to talk about, but it's really hard to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, speaking of learning, I want you to hear a little bit more from our conversation with Mike today because, well, you'll see why. Hey, tell us your redemption story because you have a beautiful one. Ah, uh, man. Okay. That just gave me chicken skin. So to, you know, the, the Goodyear blimp view of it is, um, uh, just, uh, moral failures, which resulted in me getting tossed in jail. It was actually a DUI that got him jail time. I was just drinking myself to death. Mike was medicating loneliness and shame with alcohol, but three years before Mike's jail stint, his wife, Debbie had rediscovered Jesus. Um, I don't know if you guys ever remember me telling you this part of it, but when when she and I were together in college, um, we aborted our first child. We we made a, just a terrible, terrible decision. Mike and Debbie went through their own private pain associated with that choice, too. It took me years to own my side of it. Um, his name is Tanner. He'd be 30. Let's see. We'll be 34. He'll be 30. He would be 35. Mike medicated his pain with even more sin, but Deb's medication of choice was the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Mike didn't like that. Because when she first came home and started saying that she loved this guy named Jesus, honestly, guys, it ticked me off. And that's about when Mike ended up in jail. If she were here, she'd tell you, she'd say, I prayed him into that uh, jail cell. She said, I would always pray, Father, let him come to the end of himself without hurting someone else. God answered Deb's prayers. God met Mike by confronting the lies that were buried in his heart. He, like almost all sin addicts, had false belief about his worth. And that began to change when he was being fingerprinted in jail. And uh, it hit me. You know, when they fingerprint you, they fingerprint you for a reason. Hmm. And, And guys, and it still captures me. There's no one else that has that fingerprint, Hmm. right? Right. And so it it was literally, it was like, all right, Lord, man, I'm so sorry. I'm, I I won't say it on this podcast. I'm I'm gonna quit messing that up. There's other words for that. (laughs) All right, I'll keep it G-rated. And so me and my little bride, that was the first place ever. So I'll bounce back. The first place to ever experience true grace is when I came home after I got tossed in jail. And I told her what went down. And she goes, I guess some things are going to change. She didn't browbeat me. She didn't beat. And things did change. You know, the clouds didn't immediately open up. And, you know, it's just, as you guys know, it's a lot of work, right? It's just, it's day in and day out uh, decisions. 
you know, I call these things that we get on to get away from ourselves, just different types of bicycle. So my particular one was uh, alcohol. And, and, and so when I come out of there, I have to figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing because I had no idea. And then there was a fellow one day at, at church, I asked him where he was going. He said, I'm going to grab a meeting. And that was on a Sunday. And I went, and I'm thinking business world meeting, right? Cause that's, that's who we are. It's what we do. And I was like a meeting. And he goes, yeah, I'm going to grab an AA meeting. And I mean, I, I almost, I almost literally just, just grabbed him. And I said, bro, you gotta, we gotta hang out. And so I started learning. He started learning. And that's the key. The man who was our communications coach didn't start out so well himself, but he learned and, and then he transferred that knowledge onto us. Mike and Debbie have written a book titled Common Ground, Finding Sacred Space in Your Marriage. It's great. It's all about communicating and listening. And you should get a copy of it. It's on Amazon or wherever you like to buy your books. This podcast is brought to you by Pure Freedom and Moody Publishers. Here's Dana Gresh. You might be really struggling with this topic of trust. I get it. I've been there. But that's when you have to lean into the one you can trust, Jesus. I hope you know him. I mean, really know him. You can trust him even when you can't trust your husband or your wife. When we began our redemption journey, I bought a a spiral-bound index card set, and I wrote verses on them to carry me through. And here's the very first Bible verse I wrote out. It's Proverbs 3, 5 to 8, and it reads, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When I was looking at that verse, I I saw, saw the word trust and lean, and I thought these two words, well, do they have anything to do with each other? And they they do. They might even be more closely related than it appears at first sight. Of course, leaning suggests neediness, right? Well, one scholar says that the word trust means, listen, to lie helpless face down. Why would you want to do that? Lean down so far that your nose is in the dirt. Could it be that trust is one way we worship God? How do we worship him with their trust? You trust with all your heart. To put part of your trust in God and some in your husband is a complete failure of this invitation to trust in the Lord, to put your trust in the Lord. The sovereign one gets all your trust. And what is the outcome when you trust him that way? Healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. When we trust the Lord with all our hearts, our bodies enjoy wellness, healing, refreshment. And the beauty of this is not lost on me. A woman whose body was once ravaged with physical symptoms of betrayal trauma and who was married to a man whose brain was impaired by addiction. Oh, we have been and we are still a couple who needs healing in our flesh and strength in our bones. Are you? I want to invite you today, put your trust in the Lord. So let's go ahead and answer this next question. Can you ever trust him again? And here's Rosie McKinney again with a lightning round of questions about trust. 
The women answering are the same ones that you heard before who were devastated by their husband's deception. Do you trust that your husband will not do anything to deliberately hurt you? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Do you trust that your husband wants to be physically intimate with you and you only? I do. 100%. Absolutely. Do you trust that if your husband was to do something stupid, like actually look at images, he would tell you quickly? Yes. For sure. Yep. Do you trust his accountability buddies to give him good advice? Yes, I do. Yep. Yes. Do you trust that he loves you and desires you? Yes. 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 Do you trust that he will never make a dumb decision again and give in to temptation? No. (laughs) No. No. But do you trust that whatever comes your way, you now have the skills to navigate it? Absolutely. 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 Final question. Do you trust him more or less now? Is this a quick answer? Because it's not a quick answer. No, I think think you can have an extended answer. Was a 100% blind trust in a human being to never fail me? Well, he's going to fail me. Um, I trust him now to be honest in his group, to make his phone calls, and to be responsible for his own recovery. I trust him more now. I trust him to try his best. I trust him to be honest with me. Yes, I trust him more now. I would say definitely. I mean, if I'm being honest, because my trust was so blind to begin with, I really didn't understand what true trust was. And so I would say that now my husband and I have um, just a a level of trust for one another that I didn't realize was possible prior to entering into this process. That's Rosie McKinney on her podcast, Fight for Love, offering hope that you can trust again. Listen, as you fill each other's cookie jars and resist the temptation to make one another the ultimate object of your trust, because only Jesus can be that, you'll rebuild trust in your own relationship. I have one more thing I really want to say about trust. Um, I have never in my entire life had to trust God more than when we were walking through this. Uh, I never faced more temptation not to trust him as we were working through what we were walking through. I had to trust God to work in Bob's heart. I had to trust God to provide financially for us when I could not travel and speak because I was just hurting so deeply. I had to trust God to protect my reputation, our reputation, as we were honest and transparent. Um, Bob, what were some ways you had to trust God in all this? Well, a lot of them are the same ways, obviously, but... What was hard for me was to trust my friends with my story, hmm. and then now trusting everyone with the story as we as we do it publicly. That's something that's hard yeah. to do without God's favor. Right. Ultimately, we go back to, okay, God, I trust you. Whatever people are going to do, I trust you to take care of that, to settle that. Maybe you need some help choosing to trust God in this rebuilding process. I know just who to get it from, my friend Lynn the one who stood so faithfully beside me, bolstering my faith and fanning the flame of hope. I I want you to know her voice, hear her heart. What you're about to listen to is a conversation she and her husband, Dan, recorded for their home church, Calvary Church at Harvest Fields. But before you hear it, do you remember Cindy Beal at the top of the show saying this? What's happened in our marriage is... um, Nothing short of miraculous. Um, Just to see where we are.
is um, the power of God. It's not two people. It's just um, two people surrender to God. And when you surrender, you will find God's power. Well, are you ready to surrender to God's plan, God's power? That's where you ultimately need to place your trust. Here's Lynn and Dan Nold. This past week I was in John 6, and and I think when you're reading, I'm reading the Bible through chronologically, mm-hmm. and so in the four Gospels you're getting the same story two to four times, depending on if all of them have the same story. And this particular one in John 6 is about um, when the storm hit and the disciples were in the boat and Jesus was on the shore and they were rowing for hours and then Jesus came walking on the water. And John doesn't talk about Peter going out to walk on the water. John doesn't talk about Jesus went to, was acting as if he was going to pass them by. But, but John says that they invited him into the boat and then they immediately reached their destination. And so it just got me thinking about that kind of a mindset. Like, why, why would it say that they invited him into the boat? Why, of course, if you see Jesus on the water, you want to get into the right. boat. But, but there's a sense of um, inviting Jesus into the boat then puts Jesus in control. You're giving yeah. up. You're surrendering your control. And you're trusting him to get you to where... Um, where, where you're going. And I, I just thought of me in the midst of a lot of the storms that I've been through or we've been through, there are times that I think, whether it's subconscious or conscious, I'm not inviting Jesus into yeah. that storm because sometimes I think I know what he's going to make me do and I don't want to do it. Other times it's the unknown of if I invite Jesus in, I don't know where he's going to lead me and, and I don't know if I trust him. So it's this whole element of of trusting when we invite him into, when we make room for him in our storm, in our boat, I think that it changes our, I know it changes our circumstances. And I just love how that says that they were immediate, after rowing for hours without Jesus in the boat, he walks up, they invite him in and they reach their destination. And then one of the accounts talked about like he was going to pass them by. And I always wondered, well, why, why would they even talk about it like that? But you know, I do think he waits for us to invite yeah. us into the storm, into our storm, into our boat. Um, and, you know, I, it made me wonder if at any point when he was walking by, if he turned around and his option was to tell them to follow him. Yeah. So that's our option. Like Peter, we can get out of the boat or we can invite him into the boat. I think that inviting him into the boat maybe takes a little yeah. less courage than stepping out. And, and Jesus will take whatever we're willing to give. If we just say, come into our boat... He'll come into our boat. If if we feel like we want to follow him out on the water, we walk out. But yeah. but it's for me, it's all about that surrender and trust. And the yeah. sooner that I do that, the sooner I invite him into those circumstances, the faster I'm going to get to the destination. Yeah, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. I, I would even say it's impossible for us to follow Jesus, to be an apprentice of Jesus, to make room for Jesus if, if we don't kind of grab onto that surrender piece. Well, that's this episode of the Happily Even After limited series podcast with Bob and Dana Gresh. Be sure to check out the show notes at danagresh.com. If you don't already have a copy of Happily Even After, Let God Redeem Your Marriage, get one anywhere you like to buy books. 
Episodes 1 through 7 of this podcast support key chapters in that book. They contain conversation prompts to explore the seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Read chapter 13 titled Truth Number 5, Trust is a Gift You Choose to Give. Yeah, and as always, the end of that chapter contains um, prompts for good conversations to consider when you're in your journey to rebuild trust. The Happily Even After podcast is written by Bob and Dana Gresh. Original music and production by Blake Bratton. And thanks to Moody Publishers for underwriting this episode. Here's what's up next time. I, I think one of the things uh, that's really interesting to me as we're talking is I think there's a connection between a woman's body responding and feeling like she's safe and that she can yes. trust her husband. Yeah. Do, you, do you, you think so too? Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well safe and can trust comes even before validated and delighted in. So we have to feel safe and trusting before we can even feel his validation and affirmation of us. So it might... We don't trust. Yeah, it might be um, too soon to dive into fixing your sex life if there hasn't been a pattern of sobriety, a breaking of the cycle of That's pornography true. use, yep. um, mm-hmm. there's probably a time and place. But what is that time and place? Because um, the Bible says in, I don't know if it's First or Second Corinthians, but don't deprive yourself of one another's gift of mm-hmm. physical touch and sex unless right. it's by mutual consent and then there should be prayer accompanying that period of time. So how does that all apply to this journey of redeeming your marriage from pornography and lust? Right. Well, interesting that that passage really says the only way that can happen is if you're for a purpose of prayer. Well, what is a purpose of prayer? It's building intimacy. Let's talk about this. You have mentioned Mm -hmm. that Sometimes for sex to become healthy again, am I understanding correctly that there needs to be a period of sobriety from one another from your marriage bed? Yes. Okay. And almost always when we do sexual therapy, even if it isn't because of porn or sexual addiction, if we're going to train, couple's going to function differently. Let's say she has never been orgasmic and they've kept trying and trying or they haven't had been able to have entry and they keep trying and trying. The first thing we do is have them stop everything they've been trying because it hasn't worked and they're just going to perpetuate the cycle 